You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Stanton, Zach Taylor, and Jeremy Paxton. Welcome to the second episode of the Weekly Brew, your source for political, social, and sports commentary brewed up in 30 minutes or less. I'm Austin Staten, and I'm joined again by my co-hosts, Zach Taylor and Jeremy Paxton. Guys, how was the week been? It's been great. I uh, made my way through a Rangers game this weekend, and uh, the weather's starting to cool off a little bit up here, so looking forward to that this week. What about you, Jeremy? I heard you uh, you, you were at a karaoke this weekend. I was. I uh, thoroughly embarrassed myself, but that's what karaoke is all about, right? Absolutely. Now, before we get started, I want to thank everyone who tuned into our first show last week. For those that offered comment, you know, comments or feedback, it was much appreciated. Uh, I think we had more than you know, 100, 150 views, so I'd like to give a special shout out to my mom and dad for constantly refreshing. Definitely appreciate that. And now for the big lead. The big lead. ABC's Jonathan Carl in his setup piece on This Week said that in the most intriguing new development... Platte River Networks, the Colorado company that set up Hillary Clinton's server, told ABC News that it's highly likely that a full backup of the server was made, meaning those thousands of emails that she deleted may still exist. The company says that it is cooperating right now with the FBI. But the bigger story is here. Is this Hillary Clinton email controversy going to go away? If Hillary gets indicted here, I, I really do think that could be a campaign ender for her. Um, there's way too much that has come out here in the past couple of weeks regarding how she kept those emails, what information she shared with people that are not authorized to see it. Um, I, I, I don't think it's going away. And I think any rivals, if they're smart, they're going to take advantage of this. And some have speculated that Joe Biden is waiting in the wings, in fact, ready to launch his candidacy on the heels of this scandal. Now, Jeremy, you mentioned Joseph Biden possibly entering the race. A lot of the Democratic hopefuls right now have gone to Iowa for their state fair that draws in all of the Democratic and Republican hopefuls. And it seems like the rhetoric that Hillary has been mentioning in her different interviews and uh, public rallies is that this is essentially a witch hunt by the Republican Party and that it's a non-issue. Is she right? Partisan witch hunts usually don't involve the DOJ of the opposing party's administration. So if this was all some Republican witch hunt in the Senate or the House or something like that, we would not see the Obama administration's DOJ getting involved as they have. I think that's an interesting point that you bring up, Jeremy. Uh, One of the comments that Hillary made uh, while addressing a crowd this week sparked a little bit of controversy. Zach, can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I think uh, there's no one better to tell us uh, about it um, than herself. Uh, So take a listen to what uh, Hillary actually said to a crowd in Iowa this weekend. So I am delighted, delighted to be here with you and with my fellow candidates. And I know that people across the country are following us on social media as well. By the way, you may have seen that I recently launched a Snapchat account. I love it. I love it. Those messages disappear all by themselves. 
Guys, I, I find this incredibly concerning because not only is she acknowledging um, that th these emails have gone away, she's making, she's mocking the whole process. She's she's making fun of the fact that we are concerned about this, that the FBI is investigating this. Um, I, I don't see this playing well for her at all going forward, both in the general election as well as the uh, the the Democratic primary, for the reasons that you mentioned, uh, Jeremy, about how this is being investigated by the Obama's uh, Department of Justice. And this is only going to get worse. Right now, um, they're showing that uh, about 17,000 emails have already been recovered, and 305 um, they have suspected of containing uh, classified information, and it's only growing from there. This isn't going away. I think it's interesting to see what is going to happen with that backup server that may exist. Obviously, in the next few weeks, we're going to find out more information about that. But I also find it's interesting that you know Hillary continues to try to make this email controversy political. But here's the ultimately ultimate thing: it's not. Uh, you know, General Patriots had his career destroyed for something arguably less severe than this. And I, I just think the whole thing is. Uh, it's mind-blowing, to be honest. There's definitely a double standard in how this case is being prosecuted. Uh, if you'll recall, the DOJ raided David Petraeus's office, and Hillary has had no such treatment. In fact, she gave her email server over to the DOJ. Uh, usually when the DOJ is investigating something, they don't ask for anything. They just show up to your house and take it. I think it's a little bit interesting how... Hillary Clinton was saying that it was not a huge deal several months ago and that it was just personal emails to Bill and, uh, you know, personal emails to Chelsea. Uh, but, you know, as the months have come on, she's slowly starting to release those emails and being a little bit reluctant about it. And, and now she's getting a little bit quippy with the media and trying to deflect the blame off of her, which, you know, might not be a bad campaign strategy. Remember, Austin, it was 50,000 pages of yoga routine. I definitely think it's going to be interesting, and as the American system, you know, plays out, it's innocent until proven guilty. So, you know, we can't presume guilt at the moment right now with Hillary Clinton, but it's definitely a black eye as her campaign is, you know, just now getting started. Again, she has a significant lead right now in the polls, but it's really going to be interesting to see how the Democrats, especially Bernie Sanders, or if Joe Biden gets into the ring, how they're going to leverage this information against her, and we'll see if it actually makes a dent. Uh, you know, I think right now her approval ratings are still relatively high among Democratic voters, but uh, some of the reports out of Iowa have suggested that they're not sure if they trust her right now. So it's going to be interesting to see it all play out. I think in the minds of uh, most Democratic voters, this is an issue, and uh, it definitely is sort of sabotaging her image in the minds of a lot of primary voters. Ultimately, this is going to be an issue, as we've discussed, that's going to follow Hillary as the primary season gets into full swing here moving into 2016. But on a different note, let's go ahead and jump into the other big news that happened on Friday, uh, which happens to be in Cuba. The U.S. flag was raised over the American embassy in Havana for the first time since 1961. Secretary of State John Kerry, who presided over the occasion, said the lives of Cubans will not change overnight but the relationship between the two nations has already shown steps in the right direction. Guys, was this a good move, or, or what do you guys think about this move for the U.S. to kind of reopen diplomatic conversations with the island nation? The first thing that comes to mind is, is the whole idea of we don't negotiate with terrorists. And I'm not calling Cuba terrorists, um, but the fact that they are a communist uh, regime 
and we are just now going ahead and saying, you know, it's, it's no different than just the releasing of the Gitmo prisoners and just a total change in foreign policy. Zach, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you real quick. What has happened in the last 50 years has just simply not worked. You know, the U.S. strategy ultimately was, you know, during the Cold War era, but in that time since, you know, the Cold War has ended, uh, you know, there's really been, you know, no significant progress that's been made. Now, I understand that there are issues right now um, that need to be resolved, especially how the U.S. and Cuba remain far apart on human rights. You know, the future of, um, you know, Guantanamo Bay, the U.S. embargo on Cuba and, you know, extraditing, extraditing fugitives. But I don't know. To me, it seems like this is kind of a step in the right direction. Now, I know there's obviously some discontent and, you know, descending opinions here in the United States, but I don't know. I, I, I as a, you know, as a conservative, I, I don't know that this is necessarily a bad step. You, you know, I think it might be a little bit flawed, but I think it is a step in the right direction. You know, I, th- I think I would agree uh, in part, um, only I, just with the idea of opening an embassy. I'm okay with opening um, communication ties and beginning to have those conversations, but opening an embassy and, and just kind of starting to just kind of cannonball into, let's just pretend like the last 50 years didn't happen and they are, there aren't all these differences um, that that just kind of concerns me with the idea of uh, are are we actually trying to promote change or are we just kind of conceding that battle on that communist regime? Here's where I'm going to disagree. Uh, Obama, not unlike the deal he did with Iran, he sort of gave Cuba everything they want without any conditions. Um, since he announced the thawing of relations, the Cuban government, he's, they've gotten even more bold in the prosecution of dissidents, particularly pro-Western, pro-democracy dissidents. Um, 200 were arrested a few weeks ago, and another 90 were arrested this past week before the ceremony. So um, I, I, I think before anyone talks about how beneficial this will be for Cuba, you have to remember who's still in power, and that is the Castro regime. Um, these people are not nice. They're not pro-Western. They're not pro-America. In fact, Castro, just a day before the ceremony where John Kerry was there to open up the, the, the new embassy, uh, said that the U.S. owes Cuba millions because of the embargo. So I, I just I don't see how this is going to actually affect the lives uh, positively of everyday Cubans. Like I think John Kerry said, this is not something that's going to happen overnight um you know but i think that it's important to take those steps in the right direction and i'm not sure that this is a you know necessarily a bad decision i know uh this has been kind of a hot topic among some of the republican uh presidential candidates specifically with jeb bush and marco rubio jeb bush has uh publicly come out and stated that he would reverse president barack obama's strategy of accommodation and appeasement and senator marco rubio has vowed to restore cuba's status as a state sponsor of terrorism so obviously there is some you know, dissenting opinions in Washington. And I think it's pretty much drawn down party lines. But I think the overall point that everyone agrees on is something needs to happen with Cuba. You know, change does need to come. And the question is, which way is it going to come? Is it going to be, you know, via the hardline approach that we've seen the last 50 years? Or is it going to be, you know, the more diplomatic cooperative approach that President Obama is trying to achieve right now? I think you just have to be really careful with the whole uh, diplomatic uh, approach. And, And to Jeremy's point, Earlier, like we saw with Iran, of if you're going to open um, diplomatic ties like that, you've got to get something in return. And I just don't see how we're not just giving everything away and, uh, and, and not asking for things in return in doing this. I think this is about Obama's legacy. I don't think he thinks that there has been enough done during his administration that makes him memorable as a president. So I, I'm 
that's my personal opinion about where this is coming from. But uh, I'll just leave you with this quote from a leader of uh, one of Cuba's pro-democracy groups. Um, and this is a direct quote. Obama's policy has given a green light to the Cuban government to crush civil society. Uh, this is from someone who was under arrest by the Cuban government here pro when they protested here before the embassy was reopened. Great discussion, guys. I think it's going to be interesting to follow, you know, kind of the reaction that happens within the next several months, uh, you know, especially as this becomes a hot topic for uh, voters, especially in South Florida, where there is a, a huge Cuban population. And I think uh, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush are going to be kind of uh, the leading voices for the Republican Party on this. But it's definitely going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. And personally, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to traveling to Cuba if they have cheap flights. You know, I'm a, I like to travel. Could be a fun place to go. Nice little island vacation. Who knows? Maybe I could get a flight on Southwest for like, you know, under 200 bucks. But we'll see. You can't beat Cuban cigars. So I think you're going to be joining me on that vacation. Probably. And that's a wrap on the big lead. Now let's head to the rundown. The rundown. Joining us now on the podcast is Paul Catalina, the co-host of You Make the Call on ESPN Central Texas. Paul, thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to join us. I'm excited. It's my first my first podcast I've ever been on, so I'm, I'm pumped. Before we get started, can you give the listeners a brief introduction on who you are and what you do? I'm the sports director uh, at ESPN Central Texas at Waco. We're the Baylor flagship. I actually just, Saturday was my 10th anniversary of being on the air there. I cover Baylor. I cover the Cowboys. I've been at Cowboys training camp already this year. Uh, I cover We cover high school football like crazy. Of course, it's Texas, so... Uh, people are obsessed with it, and uh, so we, we start that next week. So uh, deep into football and all things Baylor and all that. Uh, I went to Florida State University, graduated in 2002, so I'm a lot older than, than you three guys. Since you do cover football, specifically Baylor, uh, as the college football season is you know just about three weeks away, what do you see the outlook being for this this year? You know, the college football playoff, we had it last year, great success, great ratings. What do you see as the outcome here in year two as we move toward that playoff? Well, I, I think it'll be interesting. I think for the Big 12 sake, they need to hope that somebody else gets screwed out of the playoff because, uh, I mean, it's not necessarily screwed. They all, they all agreed to the same formula. So they knew going in that somebody was going to get left out. The fact that Baylor and TCU happen to be the two teams that did, you know, just leaves so much more discussion because it's not just about the conference. It might be about the size of the schools. Did Baylor and TCU get left out because they're not true blue bloods? Because the four programs that were in there, Alabama, Florida State, Ohio State, and Oregon, are blue bloods. Now, Oregon's probably a, a Johnny-come-lately to the blue blood status, but they're still a blue blood. They're backed by Nike hugely because of Phil Knight. So, you know, there's a little bit of sway that they have that maybe other people don't schools of their size, which are not a very big school. So, you know, I think that added to the controversy. I, I'm, I'm hoping to see, you know, maybe four completely different teams in it. That would be great to, to see that, you know, new teams in the thing and, and different, different people in different places, uh, you know, getting to the finals because I think parity in college football is important because the blue blood problem is a problem for Baylor and TCU because they're not, included in that elite for completely arbitrary reasons that just because they weren't good 25, 30 years ago doesn't mean that they're not good now. And the playoffs should never be based on what happened in the 90s or the 80s or, or God forbid, any, any time before that. I'm wondering uh, with what happened between Baylor and TCU last year and kind of just all of that controversy that kind of came up and everything that you kind of alluded to of, you know, kind of needing someone to get screwed out of it or, 
you know, whatever. How how do you see the long-term viability of just a four-team playoff, or do you see it expanding um, if it gets to the point where now it's out in Ohio State or in Alabama getting left out um, because of a one loss? And do you see that being kind of like a more more you know motivation for the NCAA to expand that from four to six or possibly eight teams? The Big Ten and the SEC will burn the place down if a three-loss team that wins their conference doesn't get in. Believe me, they'll they'll, they'll force change. That's why I think it's it's important that somebody else gets left out other than the Big 12. Now, if the Big 12 gets left out again, they're probably going to have to revisit the championship game issue, which I think is really stupid for a conference that plays a true round robin to have to have a championship game. And, you know, basically what the other conferences are trying to force them into doing is doing it their way, which is not they don't even like doing it. They just have to trumpet it because it's what they do. But if you ask any of those coaches, would you rather – play a conference championship game or just if you're undefeated at the top of your conference move on to the national championship playoff they'll all say well i'd rather skip that game it can really do nothing but bad things for you most of the time they would do it so uh, i hope that that doesn't come to that but uh, i think that it will expand eventually and, and i think it's going to take a big 10 a pac 12 team somebody getting left out maybe a couple times down the road that it'll expand to eight or just the fact that this 14 playoff over the first five years of it is going to make so much money that the parties involved will be like, well, we can make more money if we have more playoff games. So ultimately, it all comes down to the dollar. Oh, it always does. Every every everything in college football is about the dollars, and if, they'll try to tell you that they they care about learning and books and stuff, and I guess maybe they kind of do, but ultimately, it's all about money. Right. And uh, speaking of money. And thinking about the Big 12, uh, David Bourne here recently made some comments about the conference and its current current state. Um, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on Big 12 expansion? And is uh, it viable at this moment? I don't think it's viable at this moment. If they're made to do it, they've got to do it. I mean, they're, they're, they really have no choice if they're made to do it. But really, realistically, why why should they have to? And who, who would they get that's not a, a Cincinnati or someone like that? I mean, it would just be silly to me to just go out and get somebody like Cincinnati or Southern Miss just to just to get yourself to to 14 or 16 teams why they don't bring you anything you're doing them a favor and they're only doing you a little one so I, I don't think it's viable I think that maybe they want to because overall maybe one day they'll have to but until they're absolutely made to expand they shouldn't because who's out there you'd really want now my my thing that I think they should do is I think they should just go get the three service academies and someone else. And then they're at 14 teams, and if anyone would say, well, the service academies uh, don't matter, then the Big 12 can be, oh, really? You hate America? Yeah, back off, Jack. And, you know, you mentioned the service academies. I mean, Air Force last year came out of nowhere, had a 10-win season, beat Boise State. I mean, so they do play decent, you know, decent brand of football. It's not the, you know, the run-and-gun offense that you see in the Big 12, but it could present some challenges. Yeah, I think it I think it'd be interesting, and it would give them a little something. Now, uh, Army and Navy are both major independents, and they're fine with it, so I don't see them rushing into a conference anytime soon. Kind of switching gears here a second, uh, there was big news that broke this afternoon about Northwestern. Uh, Northwestern football players were denied their request to form the first union for collegiate athletes. Now, with pending litigation against the NCAA and specifically the Ed O'Bannon case, what does this mean for the future of college athletics? 
Well, I actually think this is good news, and I'm not I'm not a flag waver for the NCAA. They do a lot of things wrong, but I think that unionizing the athletes would have been a bad thing. I think it just leads to too many problems. And the the thing that both sides have to admit that that college athletes have to admit is that uh, it is different than professional athletics. But what the NCAA has to admit is it is not what it used to be. There's a lot more money involved, and there's a lot of things that need to to flow differently than they did in the past. So you can't sit there and sign these big, gigantic TV deals and then cry poverty unless you have complete transparency, which they don't. So I think if the NCAA is more transparent about what they do, uh, if the schools are more transparent about what they do, then maybe they can come to some sort of agreement. But I do think that both sides need to get to that the NCAA and the conferences and everyone involved just needs to work this out on their own and realize that things are changing and not try to fight to keep the old ways because, look, it's not 1960 anymore. You make a whole lot more money. There's a lot more TV sets. There's a lot more people involved. You cannot just sit back and say, well, we don't. We need to just keep the same deal we had back then. Yeah, it's a great deal for you, but you know, share the wealth a little bit and you can solve this problem. All right, Paul, before we go, I just wanted to ask, which four teams do you think will make the playoffs? I'm going to say uh, it's going to be Ohio State again. Alabama, I think, will be back. I think Baylor will be in it. And I think – I don't want to say an ACC school. I think that the winner of that conference is going to have two losses at minimum. So I'm going to say out of the blue, Steve Sarkeesian and USC uh, surprise some people and win that league this year. All right, pretty bold picks. Yeah. But I think, you, I think Baylor's you, I think Baylor's in it. I don't I only see them losing one game for you know on the outset and it may be a rando. So like in Oklahoma State, I, I think they actually win the TCU game. I really do. Thanks again for joining us, Paul. And before we let you go, you're pretty active on social media. Tell us how we can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Paul Catalina, just my name, P A U L C A T A L A N A. All right, that was Paul Catalina. Paul, thanks for joining us. All right, thanks guys for having me. Anytime. Now for our final segment of the podcast. Around the Horn. Zach, lead us off. Around the Horn. Guys, I don't know if you heard, but uh, for the first time in 20 years, China has uh, started to devalue their currency. And this is going to have a big impact, not only on the United States economy, but on the global economy um, as a whole. Uh, were you guys aware of this, um, of this going on? As you mentioned, China did devalue the currency by nearly 2% after a run of poor economic data, uh, you know, guiding the currency to a near three-year low. And for me personally, working in the oil and gas industry, we've definitely seen uh, kind of a, a strain on the global price of oil. Uh, you know, China's been that economic power the last few years that's been growing, 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 and their demand for oil and you know energy has been increasing. However, as we've seen the economy kind of slow down here over the last 12 to 18 months, we've noticed that the demand is not there yet. The global supply of oil is you know at an all-time high. So as a result, right now, the you know the world's number two consumer. Um, you know, is does not need oil right now, and they don't need as much energy. So we've seen a direct impact, especially on the price of oil here in the United States. Uh, it closed today at $41.90, and uh, the Brent price overseas closed at just over uh, $48 at 48.74. So we're starting to see the impacts, especially in the energy sector. Uh, we've already seen whenever China first announced this, the Dow and the S&P dropped two, 200 points in the Dow and about 100 points in the S&P, and then the S&P dropped further the next day, either that Wednesday or that Thursday. 
Um, I think we're going to see sort of a knee-jerk reaction in the stock market. So essentially, this devaluation is going to make China's goods cheaper. It's going to be easier for them to export to the U.S. because it's going to be cheaper for us to buy Chinese goods, but it's going to be more expensive or actually cost us not – we're not going to make as much money um, by exporting into China. And if we're not exporting as much to China, we aren't going to be making as much. And if we're not making as much to export, we're going to start losing jobs. And so there's going to be a long-term, both a short-term and a long-term effect with this here in the U.S. And I'm curious to see how this actually plays out in uh, the, the election cycle here this year. One thing to add about uh, China devaluing their currency is that uh, luxury goods manufacturers have for about the past 10 years really depended on the Chinese middle class boom here to uh, sell their products. And uh, while sales have slowed in the West, particularly in Western Europe and North America, uh, China has really led the way in the, you know, buying things like um, you know, Swiss watches, German cameras, things like that. And so with European and American goods now being more expensive in China, I wonder how that's going to affect um, other industries around the globe, particularly in the, in the luxury goods sector. Yeah, essentially right now, China's economy is so massive that uh, it, it's definitely going to uh, affect the global economy, you know, as Zach mentioned, both in the short term and the long term. Around the horn. So if you follow the NFL in the last few years, you've noticed that domestic violence has been a significant issue for the league. And most notably last season when Ray Rice was suspended for the season and ultimately had his contract terminated by the Baltimore Ravens. In fact, according to ESPN's 538.com, domestic violence accounts for 48% of arrests for violent crimes among NFL players compared to an estimated 21% nationally. Well, head coach Derek Roberson of Skyline High School in Dallas, Texas, is doing his part to end domestic violence by requiring the student athletes to attend a two-hour workshop, or what Roberson refers to as a huddle, concerning domestic violence. Players at Skyline are required to attend this huddle prior to participating in fall camp and have appeared to be quite receptive early on. Now, for Coach Roberson, this hit close to home. Uh, when he was growing up, he saw his mother being beaten by his stepfather and the Texas hospital where she stayed for several days afterward, and another time when a boyfriend threatened to kill her, which caused her to jump out of a moving truck to save herself. So obviously this has impacted the head coach, and it's very, very awesome to see a head coach kind of take the stand against domestic violence and kind of nip it in the bud you know, with 14- to 18-year-old student-athletes. I think this is a great step in the right direction, especially for these student-athletes at Skyline High School, which if you follow football, in the state of Texas, it's a powerhouse. And so it's great to see a coach, you know, developing leaders, developing men, developing character. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think it's great not only to start it young, uh, but particularly seeing how the NFL is reacting um, to allowing, you know, the Cowboys signing Greg Hardy. And I know Ray Rice is still looking for a position, um, but just seeing how like the suspensions and everything isn't really what should be a true reflection of, of the crimes committed. Uh, that, that it's really important to start this education and, uh, and, and things early. I, I certainly think this is great. I can't disagree with the message. I, I do think that within the context of kind of the culture in football, uh, domestic violence is certainly sort of a larger systemic cultural issue um, that needs to be addressed on more than one level. Certainly, this is a great place to start, um, but I, I do think more has to be done, uh, not just in the locker room, but also in the home to uh, address kind of how what, what messages these boys are getting about how to treat women um, early on in their lives. At the end of the day, you just definitely want to commend Coach Roberson for taking a stand. I think he's doing a great job for these student-athletes and hopefully other high school programs, not only throughout the state of Texas, but the rest of the United States can kind of adopt the same mindset and end domestic violence.
around the horn. All right, now, Jeremy, you closed us off last week with uh, with an interesting topic. This week, I expect you to do the same. Tell us what you've been working on this week. This week, research that was published in the Journal of Evolutionary and Behavioral Sciences um, indicated that breakups are especially tough on men, tougher, in fact, than they are in women. Um, so the study's findings were based from input from over 5,700 men and women from 96 countries. So that's a pretty large sample. Um, one thing I thought that was interesting about the study was that um, it, it sort of the conclusion was sort of uh, contrary to what conventional wisdom might tell you, and that women take breakups harder than men do. Um, do you guys have any reaction to that? You know, when I first heard about the study, I, I was kind of surprised. Um, one, just the fact that, you know, you've turned into a dating expert. I, I think that was the biggest revelation for me. Uh, but two, I'm not exactly sure how you can measure this. And I think it, 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 it goes on, you know, different situations. Who broke, who broke up with whom? Was it mutual? Uh, you know, the, I think there's so many different factors. I don't know. I, I know both, you know, um, you know, guys and girls who have, you know, taken breakups hard. So I'm not sure if I necessarily believe the validity of the study, um, but I think it's definitely an interesting talking point. Uh, I know this week we had actually mentioned this at uh, karaoke on Saturday night, and uh, I, I think the girls that we were talking to uh, at karaoke had strong opinions about this study. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just not exactly sure what to think about this. I, I appreciated the fact that it actually acknowledged that breakups can actually have um, a similar effect on women and actually have like an impact. Yeah, Zach, you're absolutely right. I, I think one of the things that the study wanted to highlight was that women tend to be a little bit more social than men are when it comes to uh, difficulties in their lives. They tend to seek out emotional support a lot more readily than men do. Uh, and so that was at least seen as a contributing factor to how they got over something a little bit more quickly than guys do. You know, men are sort of, um, you know, in society, we're sort of told to sort of buck up, handle it, you know, um, we're not we're not encouraged to seek out emotional support in the same way women are. So um, I, I think that was one of the conclusions from the study that sort of stuck with me. Definitely an interesting subject matter. And I can tell you that's probably going to be one of the more controversial uh, topics that we have on our, our on our podcast this week. You know, we've talked about Cuba. We've talked about Hillary Clinton. Uh, but I, I think that is going to be the most talked about subject matter. So if you have any feedback, again, uh, let us know on Facebook.com slash Weekly Brewcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Weekly Brewcast. We would definitely like to hear your feedback, your input, and any suggestions that you might have for future episodes. Closing time. Guys, second podcast. Definitely had a lot of fun tonight. Uh, it's definitely fun to come together and talk about, you know, issues, uh, some that are lighthearted, some that are a little more serious, and also to, you know, discuss sports. Uh, it's definitely been a blast tonight. Absolutely. Enjoyed it once again and really had a great time with Paul on the podcast. Thanks again, Paul, um, and looking forward to next week. And thanks again to Paul Catalina for being our guest on tonight's show from ESPN Central Texas. And again, on behalf of my co-hosts, Zach Taylor and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Staten, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Stanton, Zach Taylor, and Jeremy Paxton.